Welcome back to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Entrecasso. With me today is Charlie Sabatino with the American Bar Association, and we're here to discuss advanced care planning and advanced care directives. Charlie, thank you for your time. You're most welcome. Uh, on background, allow me to make a few brief points. First, every state has one or more statutes providing for advanced care directives. That point aside, nearly three-fourths of Americans who live beyond the age 65 will suffer from multiple chronic diseases requiring long-term medical care over several years. I'll add, up to 55% of deaths in this country occur in healthcare facilities. Survey data shows, however, that only 20 to 30% of Americans have an advanced care directive, and that percentage is only slightly higher for those with chronic illness. Although there are countless similar cases of possible consequences absent care planning, likely the most noted is Terry Schiavo's. And Ms. Schiavo died in 2005, however, only after a seven-year legal battle that included numerous Florida court motions, petitions, and hearings, 14 appeals, five federal district court suits, four U.S. Supreme Court certiorari denials, and passage of congressional uh, legislation. Lastly, I might note that it's estimated that 30,000 Americans are kept alive in comatose or PVS, permanent vegetative states, uh, in this country. So with all that, um, let me just say lastly, uh, I'll not summarize Mr. Sabatino's impressive resume or bio, since of course it's posted on the podcast website. So let's begin. Uh, Charlie, let's start with the basics. What is an advanced care plan? I know there are several terms for advanced care directives, or more generally, what does an advanced care directive accomplish? Well, an advanced care directive, and I'll give some definition of that, is part of the process that we call advanced care planning. And that's the, the I think, the, uh, the starting point to get your hands around uh, the, this whole topic. In advanced care planning is simply a process of preparing for future health decisions. Uh, that has to involve uh, thoughtful discussion with the right people, uh, namely family members who may be involved in making health care decisions, uh, the individual whom you want to be your, your, your health care decision maker when you can no longer make decisions. Uh, it should involve conversation with your physician also. Uh, result of that uh, conversation uh, is usually some kind of documentation in the form of an advanced directive. And those tend to come in two flavors. Uh, one, the living will, which uh, people tend to be most common with that term, uh, is simply uh, a set of in instructions uh, or guidance that you may want to give to the decision makers. And the other document is the uh, appointment of an agent under a power of attorney for health care. Um, now, these documents all have different names in different states, medical directive, uh, health care proxy, health care surrogate, uh, but they're all basically uh, do the same two things. You give, give guidance and name uh, uh, a decision maker for yourself. And, and those are the two most converse, important conversations. Who should be your decision maker is, is not just a quick decision. It really is a thoughtful conversation. And, and secondly, what guidance do you want to give is going to depend upon what stage of life you're at and what stage of health you're at. Okay. Let me just note one specific since it's gotten a lot, or received rather a lot of attention uh, in the uh, recent past, and that's a pulsed. A physician 
uh, order for life-sustaining treatment. Can you describe? Uh, that's a similar document, correct? Well, it is not an advanced directive. It is a set of medical orders. Uh, you know, keep in mind that no matter what instructions you, you write down, I don't want uh, to be resuscitated or I don't want nutrition and hydration, uh, that's just an expression of, of your wishes. It, it does not uh, automatically become a medical order. It doesn't automatically get incorporated into the plan of care. Uh, and that's one of the big big gaps in, in uh, making this all work, is that we, no matter how articulate you are in thinking about this and spelling it out, if it doesn't get converted into uh, the medical plan at the time these decisions are actually being faced, then it falls apart. And Pulse came about because of the experience of, of clinicians all over the place that, uh, yes, the person has expressed their wishes, but what really happens on the floor in the clinical setting is driven by medical orders and it's driven by standardized uh, clinical protocols. Uh, and they speak two different languages. So POST was intended, is intended to be a trans, uh, translational device. Uh, ascertaining your wishes when you are in a stage of advanced care where these decisions are imminent and translating them into a set of medical orders that are going to be uh, uh, address the most uh, likely crises that are going to be very visible and that are going to follow you from, from place to place. And that is the provider's responsibility to make sure those things happen. Uh, so it's kind of a sea change. Instead of trying to standardize what, what you and I do to express our wishes, Pulse standardizes what healthcare providers have to do to ascertain your wishes and convert them into uh, medical orders. And we'll follow back on Pulse, but let's go to um, this subject, and that is, uh, per my introduction, uh, what explains the fact that Americans are let's just say, um, shy about uh, having these conversations and uh, completing more formally uh, these documents. I might note, I did look comparatively at, at uh, uh, the extent to which there is advanced directives in Europe, and in one New England Journal study in 2010, uh, it noted or found that 67% of uh, decedents uh, who lacked, who had lacked uh, decision-making capacity had had a, an advanced directive. So. Again, in this country, why why so infrequently uh, do Americans have these documents prepared? Well, you know, part of it is, I think, cultural. <clears throat> We're a very youth-oriented uh, culture, and uh, we have this uh, conception that, you know, uh, dying is negotiable uh, <laughs> when it isn't. I mean, death is an inevitable aspect of the human condition, but dying badly is not, and, uh, and that's the part of it we haven't uh, dealt with very well. Um, from my uh, perspective in the legal profession, uh, looking at this over the last three decades, I, I really see that the law has actually gotten in the way of encouraging people to do advanced directives because uh, we have, over time, uh, overly legalized the process, and that tends to make it appear more complicated to people and put them off. And uh, the, the states have done a great job of, of developing a profusion of different forms, um, uh, many of which don't work from one state to the other. And um, uh, th this attempt in policy to provide a tool for people to make it easier for them has actually, in some ways, turned out to make it harder for people to express their wishes. 
So people, you know, people don't do it. You know, add that on top of the cultural uh, uh, fear of dealing with death and dying, uh, the magical thinking about it. If you talk about it, you're just encouraging it to happen. Uh, is 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 out there? Okay. Um, so continuing with with barriers. Um, what explains, um, well, let me just ask specifically, let's go back to the Pulse issue. There is some concern about, because in some states, the Pulse document does not needed to be signed by the patient. Uh, they can be executed just with a physician's signature, and of course, this has caused the ire of, amongst others, um, uh, disability groups in the Catholic Church. Um, but there are other uh, concerns about um, advanced care uh, directors, for example, on the operational side, beyond participation, there's all sorts of issues about updating. Are these your, the person's latest wishes, the use and retrieval of the documents, the funding for these state databases? Um, what more can you say about just in the execution, despite the fact that maybe we've made it more problematic by over-legalizing it? Yeah, uh, you know, one of the uh, outcomes of over-legalizing it is we think of advanced uh, directives as these formalized documents. If you have a conversation with your physician uh, or healthcare provider, and it's and it's noted in the record, uh, that's as important and as valid from a clinical perspective as this legal document. Uh, the the legal documents we call advanced directives um, have taken the tact traditionally of trying to get you to pre-decide certain decisions ahead of time when, when uh, they may be years away, they're hypothetical, and 30 years of, of, of uh, medical and social research have shown that uh, instructions about particular treatment decisions done ahead of time don't work. Uh, they tend to be too nonspecific. When, when you get into a real situation, uh, any individual circumstances are so complicated around serious illness that you can't possibly uh, uh, make those decisions ahead of time in any informed way. So so advanced directives, besides not being at, at the right place at the right time, even when they are there, they don't tend to provide a, a lot of instruction. The most valuable thing they can do uh, is to appoint a, a, uh, a well-qualified spokesperson, your agent, your healthcare agent. Um, but even on that score, we don't do a very good job of preparing people to be uh, a substitute decision maker. It's not an easy job, and there's no uh, description in our culture uh, for for doing it, like it is being, uh, you know, a cook or uh, what does it mean to be a good parent. Uh, uh, all these roles are uh, roles that we've always had, you know, forever. But the role of a healthcare substitute decision maker is a new role, and. Um, most of us have, haven't a clue on how to carry it out. So, so we we really uh, it would be more helpful to be focusing on preparing people to be able to make good decisions rather than trying to pre-decide certain treatment and instructions. And I think we're seeing the field move in that direction, with less a little bit less focus on on um, uh, living will type documents, a little bit more focus on who your healthcare agent should be and talking to your agent, and and and. Just as importantly, how much flexibility to give an agent. Um, agents j just don't uh, announce what your decision would have been. 
they actually become the decision maker and have to put themselves in your shoes, have to be able, have to be good researchers to find out what all the medical facts are, what the alternatives are, and uh, and do the best that that, that they can. Um, but uh, don't think of, uh, of of advanced care planning as as the document. Uh, the, <clears throat> the the only real legal document that is needed is the is the healthcare power of attorney. That is a creature of state statute. Uh, the the legal mandate to follow your wishes already exists in both common law and constitutional law. If, if healthcare providers uh, know what your wishes are, they they damn well better honor them unless they have a good reason not to. So let's pick up on that. There has been uh, proposed legislation at the federal level whereby the phrase is any legitimate expression of the patient's wishes. Uh, so less legalized, more informal, um, uh, accounts for the fact that not all possible circumstances can be accounted for in advance. Mm -hmm. So explain what, what, that, what that means. Well, uh, there have been some proposals at the federal level for ensuring portability of advanced directives across state lines, uh, and that's a complicated topic. But one, one of the, the uh, uh, proposed language uh, uh, approaches has been simply to make it clear that uh, any authentic expression or any expression of your wishes that has credible evidence uh, should be respected. Uh, and the intent there is to really restate what, uh, what I think is a fairly accurate representation of the common law and constitutional law and, and put it in statute um, so that, uh, and this would apply essentially to Medicare and Medicaid providers because those are the federal programs that uh, affect uh, most older persons and persons with disability, um, and, um, and, and try to add common sense to what has sometimes become an awkward uh, uh, jockeying of these legal documents. Um, now there's some pushback on that because uh, the uh, lawyers on the other lawyers on the other side will say, well, what, you know, how do you determine what's an authentic expression or what is credible evidence? And uh, you know, we lawyers think in terms of these elaborate uh, evidentiary uh, 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 complexes. And uh, but the truth is, is that physicians have to make that decision every day that they work with patients. They're they're making decisions all the time with patients' uh, knowledge and consent, um, and uh, they're they're hearing. Uh, what patients say and their family members say every day. So it, so it isn't something unusual for clinicians from, from what I can tell. It's just that these are at the point where the decisions are, are, are major decisions. Well, let's go to now sort of the other side, which is the solution side. What are some of the, you see as promising current efforts to improve, and let's just term it generically, advanced care planning? Um, I did mention uh, PULSE, uh, the state of Oregon gets recognition for um, um, forwarding that effort. Um, you know, Gunderson, La Crosse, Wisconsin has won national reputation for their efforts in getting their residents to do advanced care planning, but where do you see sort of the opportunities to improve at this? Um, well, well, a couple. I mean, uh, th think of PULSE uh, as the last stage of advanced care planning. Uh, uh, advanced care planning is a developmental process, uh, and uh, the Gunderson Lutheran system is, is, uses a three-stage model. Uh, healthy adult, um, uh, typically younger adult, um, the, the focus of advanced care planning there is 
you know, naming someone who could step in as a substitute decision maker if you were in a car accident or, or a sudden illness. Um, you know, my 20-something children uh, aren't likely to have much of a conversation about what they want at the end of life. But that's perfectly developmentally normal for them. Mm -hmm. But they, but they certainly can uh, can identify who they would want to be their decision maker. When you're um, uh, more typically middle aged but you you have some chronic condition or conditions that are stable, um, and then I'm in my, I myself am in that situation. You you've had some experiences with death in the family and elsewhere. Uh, you have experience with uh, chronic uh, illness, but you're you're very stable and you know still living a productive, uh, normal lifestyle, there is some guidance in terms of values and, and goals that you can articulate. When you're facing uh, a serious uh, progressive uh, condition that is eventually fatal uh, and you're approaching the end stage, then uh, you have a number of high probability crises that you nearly need to plan for. Uh, otherwise, um, you know what happens to you will be, uh, you know, the the flip of a coin in some cases, or somebody else's decision, and and not yours. So so pulse comes in at that third stage, that last stage, uh, when when the decisions aren't distant and hypothetical anymore. They they have to do with your here and now condition. Um, and all those stages, I mean, seeing this as one continuum is is, is critical because it is, it is a, an ongoing conversation, and the the. Uh, beating heart of advanced directives and posts, as well as their Achilles heel, is the quality of the conversation behind them. Uh, if you run through this with, uh, here's a form, check this, check this, and sign it. Yes, this is not a check-the-box exercise. Yes, th then you, you're abusing the whole uh, enterprise, and you're not doing a, a good service to patients. And, and believe me, advanced directives and posts can be abused. We don't see a lot of evidence of that, and the abuse we see in Pulse tends to be out of ignorance. Um, I mean, I have I have seen uh, uh, a nursing home staff here and there complete a form for a patient and say, "Here, we need this form in your file. Would you sign it?" And that is that is uh, just atrocious and uh, and uh, a violation of the, of the individual's rights. Uh, but done well, it really um, makes sure that A, your wishes are known, and B, they're respected when the time comes that uh, action has to be taken. Let me ask you this, this very, uh, since there's been such, so much discussion so far here on uh, the proxy, and this is actually the case at lunch today, I was asked uh, by a friend if I would serve as their partner is their proxy, but I would be the backup. Mm-hmm. So immediately my thought was, what should I know? So let me ask you that question. Well, there's an increasing number of good resources out there, which is one of the encouraging signs. Um, we, we have uh, a, f a free publication on our website uh, on, on uh, how to be a proxy decision maker, which tries to give you kind of your job description and tips for dealing with various situations. Um, there are a number of other uh, uh, materials available online. Some of them are interactive web uh, pages like uh, uh, mydirectives.com and prepare. Um, what is that? I don't have the prepare website in front of me, okay. but it's another one that helps you walk through this, helps you, uh, guides you in talking to your agent and, and having those conversations. Um, 
So, you know, number one, make use of those resources. You don't have to go to a lawyer uh, to do this. Uh, you're, you're better off talking to your doctor, but we all know that doctors seem to have so little time to talk to us that, that um, um, you know, you have to, you have to use that time uh, effectively. So it really helps to have done a lot of the footwork uh, ahead of time. Um, so I, I, uh, we, we have a resource page on our website that it, it suggests a number of resources. Everybody is different, so there's no one resource that I can say is the best resource for you. Mm -hmm. uh, some uh, approaches may, uh, may really engage you. Others may turn you off and, and you know, make you want to go the other way. And that's fine because um, we have to have a lot of different avenues to this, to this goal. Okay, let, let me go back to uh, relative to your efforts maybe more formally. And since I did mention efforts at the federal legislative uh, level, what do you think are steps in the right direction at the federal uh, legislative or regulatory level? Now, I do say on the website there was, of course, efforts under the ACA and subsequently under regulatory reform efforts to try to reimburse physicians under Medicare to have these conversations. Of course, that led to the infamous death panel discussions. Right. Um, but what would be a step in the right direction at the federal level? Well, um, it's very important to think of advanced care planning as part and parcel to the, the care system services out there. Uh, having a discussion about what, what you would like your end stage of life to be um, is really uh, uh, dependent on what services are available to you. Uh, you know, we tend to have under Medicare uh, no limit to uh, aggressive curative care. But when it comes to long-term care or, or simply making your life comfortable, uh, well, that's kind of cons that's considered non-medical. That's supportive stuff, and, and Medicare doesn't doesn't deal with that. So there really needs to be a new way of thinking about what advanced care is for people who, as they get further along in a disease that doesn't put care in these different silos, that allows it to be uh, organized and managed in a more holistic way. Uh, and, I, and I think that is very doable and, and affordable because we have so much uh, uh, unnecessary hospitalization in the last uh, month or months of life that people don't want. If they want them, that, that's fine. But uh, we know uh, from research that, that there's uh, way more than people want. And people uh, end up in intensive care units and uh, would, would uh, if they had knew their choices and they had choices, would, would be elsewhere. So um, organizing... Uh, Medicare and Medicaid around some kind of vehicle for advanced care uh, would be helpful because planning is, is part and parcel of that. Uh, on the pure advanced directive side, we already have in law a requirement that when you enter a hospital or nursing home, you'd be asked if you have an advanced directive and, and, if, uh, and it'd be noted in the record if you have one. What's absent from that is any obligation to provide any counseling around that. The only place in federal law that exists is, is when you first become eligible for Medicare. Your welcome to Medicare exam includes counseling around advanced directives, and then it disappears from uh, the picture uh, thereafter, which is somewhat silly because, as I said, it needs to be an ongoing conversation, so it really ought to be revisited every year. Uh, CMS, uh, which is responsible for Medicare and Medicaid, could, could make this happen right now through regulation uh, by requiring, uh, at least under Medicare, uh, advanced care planning counseling done in a voluntary way be made available 
to patients yearly with the annual uh, wellness exam that Medicare provides. But they were scared off by the death panels debacle of 2009 and um, uh, are probably going to need a lot of pushing and encouragement <laughs> to go back uh, uh, to that. Um, and finally, uh, the, uh, the portability issue you mentioned is something that, that the federal government could address through um, uh, requiring uh, now, mo most states already in their law do recognize the validity of an out-of-state advanced directive, but not every state. And recognizing... You did research this, and how many states... You did come up with a finite number, did you not? Uh, well, we, we did some time ago, so it's not accurate anymore, but it's probably, uh, you know, close uh, to 40 states or even more than that uh, recognize the validity of an out-of-state directive. But that's only part of portability. Uh, Portability has um, this, this portability of, of its validity and this portability of, of, its, um, uh, of its interpretation. Uh, in some states, uh, if you say I give you the authority to make all healthcare decisions for me, that includes withdrawing life support, it includes withdrawing nutrition and hydration. But in other states, it doesn't include that unless you spell out um, nutrition and hydration, unless you spell out the life support you're talking about. So if I did uh, my directive in the, in the first state I mentioned uh, and then moved to another state, they might say, oh, sure, we, we recognize your directive is valid, but we don't interpret it the way, you, the way you want it to be interpreted. So we have these kinds of barriers in implementing across state uh, lines. And, and um, th the states really can't do that very well themselves. It really takes the federal government to say these have to be considered valid across state lines. And the other uh, approach we were talking about before is simply uh, to, to uh, circumvent having to deal with figuring out whether the formalities are right and simply saying any authentic expression or any credible expression uh, should be given due respect, uh, which uh, is, is really what physicians do every day anyway. Let me ask you, there is um, optimism that with the movement towards finally electronic health records, um, and the federal government is requiring for a certain reimbursement such that your uh, electronic health record meets quote-unquote meaningful use that will solve this problem in part through the adoption of um, EMRs because they'll require uh, documentation about advanced directive. What, what's your level of optimism around our moving uh, towards electronic databases? Well, you know, we have uh, a couple examples where it's done quite well already. Uh, in Oregon, the POLST uh, program uh, benefits from legislation a couple years ago that created a mandatory registry for, for POLST orders. Uh, now, the patient has the right to opt out of it. But in their first year, and Oregon's a pretty small state, they had 25,000-plus submissions to the POLST registry. And um, th that uh, enabled them to um, both do research on how it's operating, as well as make it available to uh, healthcare providers uh, uh, in an instant by computer or by phone or by fax. Uh, and it uh, appears to have had a, 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 a definite positive impact on its implementation. Um, locales like the Gunderson Lutheran Health System that we were talking about um, have a, a work with electronic health records across their system. 
and they have, from as it has been described to me, uh, a, a one-click uh, access to one's advanced directive and pulse form uh, because it's a tab that's always on the screen. So we know it's possible to do. It's it's really whether you know we will get everybody to the same point. Uh, there are many electronic health system providers and, and many different interests competing. Um, we do have, under the HITECH Act, uh, standards that are set out for people to get subsidies from the federal government, and uh, they have been uh, going through several stages to step-by-step uh, uh, -step improve uh, the system. And they do address advanced directives, but very, very poorly. They were proposing that uh, you would meet their criteria if at least, uh, if your medical record noted whether um, persons over 65, whether whether half of your population over 65 uh, had an advanced directive or not. That didn't require any documentation of what the advanced directive said, and, and limiting it to those over 65 has no relationship to clinical realities because there are very healthy 65-year-olds and there's very sick younger people. Um, so they have a long way to go in terms of thinking how to uh, create measurable standards. Okay. And sorry to say, with that, we're at our time boundary. So let me thank you again for your time, Charlie. My pleasure. Thank you.